Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. As a nation, the power of lying to manipulate, delude, and even cause people to take up arms has been openly demonstrated in our country. We've been subjected to what is called the big lie in regard to the election and recently the news continues to be filled with the versions of, really two versions of the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. In the Bible, lying and the big lie are thematic. The big lie in scripture, you know, it might refer to that original lie of the serpent tempting the first couple. You won't die, you'll be like gods. So they're to innovate their own understanding to establish the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe it refers to something like the covenant with death that's pictured in Isaiah. I think it's a picture of false religion. It says, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. And here the messianic passage right after this refers to Jesus or the Messiah uncovering this lie that this is the work of Christ. Besides the theme, it's there in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and several places in the prophets that you have deluded yourselves. You're deluded by a lie. It may refer to false religion, but in other places just lying and the lie are continually warned against. In Psalms 120, It says, save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. In Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17, 7, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. Proverbs 13, 5, a righteous man hates falsehood. But a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Colossians 3.9 Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And of course in the New Testament Jesus describes the Pharisees and those who've come up against him. He says you're of your father the devil. You want to do what he did. That he was a liar from the beginning. He speaks a lie, and lying is his native language. He's the father of lies. And in the New Testament, the picture of the last days is of people being deluded, and of course Christians are included in this. 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And then the picture in Revelation, the outside of the city of God are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and the last in the list Everyone who loves and practices lying. Then let's read this passage from Timothy that describes then 
a series of things that in the last days difficult times will come for people will be lovers of self lovers of money boastful arrogant slanders disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy unloving irreconcilable malicious gossips without self-control brutal haters of good treacherous reckless conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such people as these, for among them are those who slip into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as James and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their foolishness will be obvious to all, just as was that also James and Jambres. What has become obvious as a result of the investigation of the January 6th committee is that Donald Trump knew he lost the election, but he lied. Testimony from his closest advisors confirmed he knew he lost and he decided to lie. And as uh, the committee chair, Benny Thompson, has put it, Donald Trump lost an election and he knew he lost an election and as a result of his loss decided to wage an attack on democracy. And of course there's the original lie and just as shocking is the momentum that it has gained that as these passages describe that many are caught up. Fox News and other right-leaning media and, they, and act, the whole Republican Party it seems like with a few exceptions we're now witnessing even the far-right supporters of Trump's election lie are then themselves being elected on the basis of their supporting the lie. And so as Thompson pointed out democracy is under attack. There's a famous quote, it's often assigned to Joseph Goebbels who describes this, whether it's really him. He was the minister of propaganda under Adolf Hitler. He said, if you tell a big lie, big enough and you keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political economic and or military consequences of the law. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent, for the truth is the mortal enemy of the law. And thus by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Now whether or not Goebbels said it, the quote describes really not only Nazi propaganda, but maybe the way state propaganda often works. A big lie, repeated often, is a means of gaining consent and overcoming dissent. And of course the idea is, well, we lie in support of a higher cause. This is actually a way of manufacturing consent, that it becomes so pervasive that it's very difficult even to expose the lie. The OSS, which was the Secret Service during World War II, 
prior to the CIA. They made up a profile of Adolf Hitler, the psychology of Adolf Hitler. And the phrase, the big lie, captured the center of his strategy. His primary rules were never allow the public to cool off. Never admit a fault or wrong. Never concede that there may be some good in your enemy. Never leave room for alternatives. Never accept blame. Concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. This sounds very familiar. And it's no surprise that in Vanity Fair, they reported Trump's ex-wife said the one book that he keeps by his bedside is Hitler's speeches. Is Trump following Hitler's strategy or is it simply that Trump and Hitler and maybe just big liars share a psychology? The psychology at one level, it's easy enough to read, that you have a ruthless drive for power. You do anything. Maybe that's kind of unbelievable when you encounter raw evil. You just think, oh, could anybody empty themselves out of their morals, concern for other people, regard for any vestige of the truth, that they would literally do anything to gain power? And of course, once you've asked the question, you've answered it because it's almost rhetorical. These big liars are not so much the mystery, but how is it that they rise to power? What forces come into play that the most soulless and dehumanized among us rise to the top? And of course, where a big lie becomes central to the survival of a group, it's obvious that those who serve the lie have a certain utilitarian purpose. You know, the Catholic Church the Soviet Union, the Sackler family, the Purdue Pharma family who engineered the opioid crisis, the Republican Party. But every institution structured around a particular deception is bound to promote and glorify the biggest and best liars. Those who stick to the lie reap the rewards until the lie is exposed. Faith and I watched the documentary. There's new tapes that have come out uh, on Chernobyl, the lost tapes of Chernobyl, in which they actually have the explosion and the aftermath. And the sad part is sticking to the lie. You know, the lie is, well, the Soviet Union cannot possibly have made such a major blunder. This accident, they're denying it in the beginning. And it resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths. I don't mean just the initial accident. I mean the lie. If they had taken action, would have saved so many. And even while the disaster was unfolding, in the city of surrounding Chernobyl, the children are sent out to play and families are going about their business. And no alarms are initially raised. And some of the most horrifying footages of soldiers who are sent with shovels into the reactors to shovel this radioactive material. And they're laughing, you know, initially. They trust the, their superiors have said, oh, it'll be good, it'll be okay. 
And the documentary implies that the fall of the Soviet Union unfolds as this big lie came unraveled. The characteristic displayed in the Soviet Union, I think it's on display in the United States, but maybe just in any totalitarian system, it's an unquestioning belief. And we live in a time of absolute certainty in which self-doubt or skepticism are seen as a weakness. I read a poll that was conducted by an online magazine. It said that absolute certainty was endorsed by both left-wing and right-wing, by 91 of 290 uh, or 31% of individuals who identified as extremely left-wing, and by 54 of 133, about 40%, of those who identified as extremely right-wing. And so their conclusion, extremism and absolute certainty seem to go together. They cite the author Karl Popper, and Popper had, he wrote the book, The Open and Closed Society. And he noted that absolute certainty is the foundational component of totalitarianism. If one is sure that one's political philosophy will lead to the best possible future for mankind, all manner of terrible acts become justifiable in service of the greater good. And the authors note that these are people who would probably refuse to change their beliefs under any circumstance. They are committed to their ideas, to the ideas of the system, more than anything else. And they cite evidence that ideological extremism is associated quote, with low cognitive flexibility, meaning the ability to adapt to new shifting or unexpected events in perspective. And now the study included both left-wing and right-wing, but they found that people identifying as extremely right-wing were far and away the most dogmatic group in the study. According to the article, these dogmatists would typically testify I am so sure I am right about the important things in life, there is no evidence that could convince me otherwise. Now this raises the question of the connection between this sort of dogmatism between Christians and their support in this country of right-wing politics. 71% of white churchgoers voted for Trump and support Trump. The Pew Research Center found that about 7 in 10 white non-Hispanic Christians or Americans who attend religious services at least monthly voted for Trump. Low church attendance, being non-white, produced the opposite result. In other words, white evangelical Christians. You know, the question arises, does the Christian faith promote a mindset or psychology that would tend toward right-wing politics? And statistically, the answer must be yes. But of course, what we can also delineate is there are conservative tendencies attached to the religion. I mean, isn't that the very foundation of Christian faith, that we have particular dogmas? Isn't the goal of Christianity to so shape human personality and the human psyche as to create un questioning belief 
Well, I, I think not. But in fact, there is clearly such a brand of Christianity that would lend itself to Trumpism or any of a number of brands of fascism. You know, this isn't just the United States. This has happened in a number of places where totalitarianism and right-wing Christianity have been joined. And it's obvious that unquestioning trust in church institutions in church authority has translated into a conservative trust in political and cultural institutions. And there almost seems to be a psychological type that is shaped by this predominant form of the faith. And I think we might describe this type as having primary trust in the law, full trust in church tradition, full trust in church institutions, and the presumption that there is no tension, no shift between the Old and New Testament or within Scripture. The law is determinative of the work of Christ, that Christ came to satisfy the law. But it's also definitive of the individual psyche. The working of guilt through the human conscience does not cause one to question the role of the conscience, the legitimacy of the guilt, or the efficacy and origin of the law which is, I think, what the New Testament does. It says, wait a minute. You know, that's Paul in Romans 7 when he said, I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. He doesn't just leave it there. He takes apart his role as a Pharisee, as a believer in the law. It's presumed that the human psyche is mostly fine. Like human government, it's instituted and shaped by God. Is it any surprise that the individual who assigns a primary and unquestioning weight to conscience would take the same attitude in his politics? Indeed, it's no surprise, you know, that kind of superego voice, the voice of conscience arising in political authorities, it's no surprise that it would go unquestioned. In one form of the faith, Christ died to fulfill the law such that a portion of the Old Testament is foundational. The law is beyond question, and Christ is interpreted through this lens as coming to satisfy the law. This would include Catholic, Reformed, Methodist churches. They all believe that the law is the primary organizing principle of the Bible. And of course, the most radical alternative is to suggest that Christ not the law or the Old Testament, is the organizing center of the Bible. And in this understanding, in this theology, Christ is not defined by the institutions of Israel, by the law of Moses, or the institutions and traditions of a Constantinian Christianity. The law was never meant to capture or codify the faith. Christ came to expose the lie of false religion. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I think that we have the basis in Christianity, in Christ, to understand and expose the lie. And this reading of Paul in the New Testament calls the finality of the law into question along with the sacrificial system, the institutions of Israel, but also the institutions 
of a Constantinian Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or any kind of institutional religion, along with a conservative conscience. The problem is not, oh, we have a correct conscience or an access to God through our conscience. The problem is that we don't have, that we're fallen. The follower of Christ is not constricted by the world as we have it. You know, that Christ is making all things new. The point is that a new world is breaking in and we have to be prepared to receive and perceive this new creation. In this understanding, the big lie is that human knowledge, human institutions, human law, you know, think of the knowledge of good and evil. The lie is that these are the basis of Christ's incarnation. This is the lie that Christ came to expose. The truth of Christ aims at the lie of Satan. Christ came to uncover the big lie, the lie of false religion, the lie of false and lying politicians. Revelation pictures Christ as engaging in a war with the lie of Satan. This is Revelation 12, 9 to 10, and I believe the way that we read the book of Revelation is this is an unfolding reality. It's unfolding now. But it's unfolding since the time of Christ. Let me conclude with this scripture. Revelation 12, 9 to 10. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. We can see the war unfolding between truth and lies. The lie and liars will capture even many of those. Revelation, the New Testament describes even those who follow Christ. But the big lie is exposed by Christ for those who have ears to hear. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.